Okay, so we all know Anne Bronte, right? You know Anne Bronte, Hannah? Not personally, Lauren, uh, as I feel like I need to make clear every week. But Okay, all right, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. You're more familiar with her now than you were, like, let's say a year ago. Oh, I didn't know. I was just like, Charlotte Bronte, yeah. Yep, yep, exactly. So um, just in case you guys are coming in here real cold, (laughs) really cold into this podcast, she is the youngest Bronte sister, born in 1820. She was a governess and really the more steadily employed Bronte sister, a Bronte sibling, (laughs) to be (laughs) honest. Um, So first she was at Blake Hall and she was uh, looking after the Ingrams who, and I said Ingrams, I mean Ingrams, I think. I think Sorry, Ingram's guys. Weird name. I think that's a weird name. Stick an R in there. I'm sticking an R in there. Sorry, Bronte enthusiasts. Sorry. I know I've got it wrong. <laughs> got it wrong. Um, those guys served as the inspiration for her first book, Agnes Grey, which we will discuss on this show later in the future. Um, then later, she was the governess for the Robinsons, much easier, at Thorpe Hall. And that was where she resigned after uh, learning of Branwell's affair with the lady of the house, which we'll talk a little bit about and we'll probably do a whole episode about in the future as well. I hope so. So, yeah, yeah. Um, Anne Bronte, I think, think this in your mind, you know, as we're talking about her today. She's like the steady one, the calm one. Um, a lot of people think of her as the like sort of super pious, super religious sister, mm-hmm. but I don't think that's quite right. I, I don't agree think... with that at all. I de- definitely after reading this book, I'm like, wait, what is going book? on? Yeah, I yeah. Just, like, have have the have the people that say that have they read Villette and Jane Eyre? Because those books are like religion. right religion. Well, right. I can't. I've blanked out a lot of Jane Eyre at this point. Well, I shouldn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think she's definitely the quiet rebel. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people give that rebellious title to Charlotte. And I think Anne is just here to steal her crown today. There we go. Hello and welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the only podcast where we read a book, hate all of the men, but secretly are trying to put kind of them in order of who you would snog, marry and avoid. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. I'm usually Team Austin, but this week we're talking about Anne Bronte. Ooh, and your Team Bronte this week? Your Team Anne Bronte, specifically. I'm Team Anne Bronte this week. Yes. Okay. I am Lauren Burke, your other host, and I am Team all of the Brontes, but especially Anne this week every week every week oh man i am so glad we've gotten you to read a book that is um not a charlotte bronte book thrilled yep yeah right and not villette even better yeah not (laughs) villette so do you agree with my theory that Anne bronte is the gateway bronte for austin fans yeah absolutely Okay, cool. Definitely would recommend. And also, if you haven't read the book and somehow you've got this far into the episode, I'd pause it. I'd read that book before you listen to us talking about it. Oh, wow. Don't be scared off by it. I wasn't sure about some of the stuff because, you know, not easily pleased. But Mm -hmm. I thought it was was a great time. By the end, I was really into it. Yeah, it's a great book. 
Um, I read it years ago. And then I've just just reread it, obviously, for this read along, which mm-hmm. thank you guys all so much um, for, you know, participating. We had we kind of did this last minute. We were like, oh, let's do this little like casual read along while we're on break. And I was surprised by how many people actually joined us and your comments in the Facebook group and on Twitter were fire and amazing. And I love you all. Just Actually, I didn't make any notes in a notebook this time. I just put all of my thoughts straight onto Facebook. Yeah. And I have to say, I loved, I was getting into arguments with people and I was having a whale of a time. I know. I was having so much fun. I felt like I was like in a, you know, master's literature course again. Mm-hmm. And it just was like, ah, yes. <laughs> I feel we like found our people. I know the book so much better just because every idea or thought that I had was challenged by someone or someone was like, mm-hmm. oh, I like that. Like, you know, are there examples or can you elaborate? And it was just, it kind of pushed me to read it a bit deeper. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then there were questions that would come up that I'm like, oh, we should really cover this on the show or just made me kind of think about our show notes a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. So um, let's what? jump into it. Let's, yeah, let's give us a bit there. Give us a bit of the old background, Lauren. Yeah, because um, let's talk a little bit more about Anne and then just kind of like where she was when she wrote Tenet. Now, again, we're going to get into Anne a lot more um, later on. This is Emily's year. So I know that's who we're focused on at the moment. But we're going to do some Anne heavy episodes because she is fascinating. Um, as I said before the music played... Anne wrote Agnes Grey, which was published in December of 1847. Now, what you have to understand is this book was published alongside Wuthering Heights. So it's just this like thin little volume right next to Wuthering Heights, which is this big, crazy, insane book, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, it sold well, but it was definitely overshadowed by just the juggernaut that was Jane Eyre that was released right before yeah. And then Wuthering Heights. So Agnes Gray is kind of like just over here on the side, you know, like people aren't talking about it as much. It's not as intense. Um, and I think that's kind of where this perception of Anne comes from, you know, just the side piece sister. Yeah. But not the case, guys, not the case. So Tenant was actually released not too much longer um, after that. That was because Agnes Gray and Wuthering Heights kind of bounced from publisher to publisher Finally, when they found a publisher, they held on to it for a really long time. So Anne had a while to work on it, uh, on Tenet, that is. And then Tenet was published in June of 1848, and it was an instant success. So had this question a lot. Was Anne successful in her time? Yes. Yeah. Very successful, very well known. Everyone knew who Acton Bell was. Um, they did kind of, you know, think maybe Acton Kerr. And Ellis were the same person. They kind of instantly okay. doubted like who they were, but successful. Yes, absolutely. I think it's interesting that people would think that they were the same person because having, yeah. like, obviously I still haven't read Wuthering Heights, so I can't speak for Emily, but I felt like Anne's voice is so unique to yes. Charlotte's that you couldn't, I just couldn't put that, those two together really. I think um, their voices are very unique and they're very distinct from one, eno- one another. Mm-hmm. But I think they're writing about kind of the same things. And I mean, I hate to pull out this word coarse because we're going to like say this word a million times, but mm-hmm. they are writing the same sort of coarse subject matter. And they're not writing like, you know, sweet little rom-coms, right? So they're like, who are these women that are or women or men 
who are writing these like kind of strange books and controversial like books. Like goblins that lived in a commune together or something. <laughs> exactly. They don't have to be the same person. <laughs> they don't, right? <laughs> it was a big debate within literary society. People were really like, they wanted to know. They were, you know, throwing out theories. It was um, someone on Twitter, actually, I think last week it was, was saying like, why do we, you know, still call George Eliot, George Eliot, but we don't call Charlotte Bronte Kerr Bell. That's and I'm like... Well, I, I think it was like a bigger deal. And also that there's three of them, you know, like there were three of these mysterious people writing these kind of weird books yeah. and people really wanted to unmask them. And it was a big deal when Charlotte was unmasked. And then I think also, you know, Elizabeth Gaskell's Life of Charlotte Bronte came out, you know, yeah, after and her so death. People, and that just, yeah. You've already got like the whole, um, the, the name things already revealed and. Yeah. Yeah. I like that she's known as Charlotte Bronte. And I think a, lot, a few people, you know, put out there, well, like, if she wanted to be known as Curabelle, we should respect her wishes. But I kind of like that the Bronte sisters have these amazing lives that I find just as interesting as, as their books. So I just kind of like, I like knowing the real them. Mm-hmm. Anyway, back to Tenet. It sold out in six weeks. So yeah, massive success. Fun. And um, also had as many, like, insane, intense reviews as, like, Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre. So, like, finally, Acton Bell's kind of stepped out of the shadows a bit and Mm -hmm. is now being just, you know, just everyone's like, this book is just as coarse and as insane, as ridiculous as Wuthering Heights. So it's like, oh, yeah, okay, finally. (laughs) I'm up there with my coarse sisters now. (laughs) Um, the inspiration for Tenant. Okay, so I often sort of see this flippantly referred to as just like Branwell, like, you know, like, oh, well, you know, she had an alcoholic brother. So she just probably is writing about Branwell. Right. And to that, I say yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just like, a su- it's superficial. Like the book is about yes. more than just Huntington's um, alcoholism. And so she's going to be pulling on Way more than just this one thing. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, he's definitely part of it. But I think um, Anne is really out to write this very progressive book. Mm -hmm. She is um, really, I would like you guys to think of her as an activist. I think that's how she thinks of herself. I think if Anne were born a man, I kind of wonder if she would have also followed into her father's footsteps and like gone to the Church of England. But I also think she would have just really seen herself as a reformer and like Mm -hmm. fighting for people. Yeah. But um, yeah, she's born a woman. So she's like, hey, I got to tell some pretty hard truths in book form. And um, one of the the inspirations for Tennant that we, we think it's one of the inspirations for Tennant is in 1840. Patrick Bronte had advised a woman named Mrs. Collins, and now she's the wife of the Keefley curate, okay. to escape from her wretched husband's drunken behavior. Oh. So he was drunken and abusive, and uh, Mrs. Collins, you know, came to Patrick Bronte, the next town over, you know, Haworth. And she's like, hey, like, I, I heard Patrick Bronte's a good guy, and he would give me some good advice. And she's like, listen... My husband's abusing me. I don't know what to do. Like, we have money problems. Like, he's an alcoholic. What What should I do? It's, I'm in a desperate situation. And he's like, you should leave him. Which is yeah, absolutely. shocking. <laughs> shocking. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't the done thing. And also for a lot longer than that as well. Like, we're talking, like, this advice being given, like, 100 years 
like 150 years before that was a thing that people were like yeah fine with and even now even now it's a struggle for and for, for like a religious man for a man of the church to say yeah. this too who's like you should About abandon someone married to another man of the church yeah exactly yeah, yeah. so he does he doesn't brush her off he's just like listen you should leave him like you should look after you which is crazy now um six and a half years later in april of 1847 mrs collins like visited the howarth parsonage again um and Anne would have like sort of heard all of this, like her whole story, you know, mm-hmm. and um, she had been left destitute by her husband. <laughs> so she had not left him. She did not take Patrick's advice. She couldn't do oh. it. But she was like suffering from, you know, venereal disease. She had no money. Um, it's sort of unclear in these notes as to whether or not her husband had died or she had just moved on. But Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, she actually moved to Manchester and she like started a lodging house and she started providing for herself and for her children. Oh, cool. So she kind of like picked herself up, you know, yeah. and moved on with her life. And she did appreciate the advice that Patrick had given her, even though she didn't really she didn't really follow it. Mm-hmm. So I think Patrick, it's funny, I'm, I'm reading a lot on Louisa May Alcott at the moment. And I'm seeing all these like parallels between Louise's father and Patrick and just how this was a household with men who were really concerned with educating their daughters mm-hmm. and with discussing and like in challenging things, you know? So I think this is, a, this is a story that, you know, Anne would have been familiar with. She would have talked to her father about it. She would talk to her sisters about it. Like these are all ideas that are out in the open and being discussed in their household. Yeah. So I think that is important to note. Um, interestingly enough, I also like this as well. Some people say that Tenet might be a slightly like a response to Wuthering Heights as well. Yeah, you have said this to me before, I think. I, I think this is interesting because Anne and Emily are very, very close. And, um, you know, they've written a lot together. Their world of Gondol is all a shared world together. And they had enormous respect for each other. But it seems like maybe Anne thought Wuthering Heights was not, I don't know, just like a little bit too fantastical, a little bit too out there, a little too soap opera-ish, possibly. Right. Yeah. So Anne hinted that she perceived Emily's story as much soft nonsense. Oh. (laughs) And said, and this is according to Juliet Barker, if I can gain the public ear at all, I would rather whisper a few wholesome truths in there than much soft nonsense. Um, so, yeah, they have kind of like people think that maybe she was mocking Wuthering Heights, even the initials. So, you know, you have Wildfell Hall, Wuthering yeah. Heights. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe she's kind of poking at that a little bit. Like Emily's created this insane, intense, violent world. I'm going to do the same, but I'm also going to give you some truths in there. Yeah. So like a little slice of realism just to to shake things up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're not going to recap the whole book bit uh, by bit like we did with North and South. Oh, I obviously. Mean, I, <laughs> I was like, obviously. I, mean, I, wrote, I wrote a recap for the novel, but I can just recap the first two thirds. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave the end out. <laughs> we'll just leave the end out. But yeah, no, Hannah, give us a little... 
Give us a little recap of this book. Okay, so I struggled. Lauren was like, three sentences, Hannah. I think this is 15. My apologies. <laughs> Going in. <laughs> this this is my attempt at putting it in a nutshell. Okay. okay. So we've got a young widow, Helen Graham, and she has a little son. And they arrive as tenants of the vacant Wildfell Hall. And Helen's distrust of society and then... Uh, Gilbert, who is the main character, and this this book isn't epistolary; it's written it through a series of letters, and then a diary that is copied into the letters, <laughs> and it's so it's all it's all told through letters, so it's also an epistolary. Um, so Gilbert's the one writing it, and he falls in love with her, starts pursuing her, and then kind of all of the neighbors start gossiping, like who's this woman? Maybe she's married. Maybe she's having an affair with Mister Lawrence, the person that's renting Wildfell Hall to her Gilbert kind of like stops dating the girl that he was dating to pursue her and like maybe she's the one spreading the rumors you're not really sure uh Helen definitely likes Gilbert back she gives him her diary kind of like to say because Gilbert sees her having like a little moment with Mr Lawrence so then he believes that the rumors are true and she says no take my diary and go and read this so then you've got this big chunk in the middle. I think it's like the longest section, which is just Helen's diary recounting six years of absolute misery being married to this guy called Arthur Huntingdon, who she married against her family's wishes. They were like, he's kind of like this fast and loose guy. He's not moral. He's not going to make you happy. And she was like, no, I can, I can show him how to live a better life. But she can't. And while she can, for the most part, kind of take on the chin the way he behaves towards her, she cannot abide him trying to pull their son, Arthur, kind of down the, the same path as he's going down. He likes yeah. wine. He tries to get him to swear. He is having affairs just in the house and in front of her. His friends are awful, most of them. Uh, there's this guy called Hargreaves. Can't wait to talk about him. He's friends with her husband. Anyway... So then she does decide that she has, you know, she can't stay with him anymore. He's like killing her. He's destroying her son. So she's going to make her way as an artist. He finds out. He then like destroys all of her stuff. So then she escapes again. But I think she does it with the help of her brother. Guess who he is? Mr. Lawrence. They weren't having an affair. It's her brother. And then you kind of catch up with her being in Wildfell Hall. But right around the same time that she uh, that Gilbert has read this, it's kind of like, well, now I know you're married. You, ooh, yeah. I still love you. And she's like, well, we can't <laughs> be together, dude. Because I'm married, <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> so if you love me, you've just got to leave me alone. And then suddenly the next thing he hears is that she's gone back to her husband because he's sick. And then the husband dies and then through some like miscommunication, Gilbert and Helen do not talk to each other for a long time. And then in the end, they get together. Yeah, it's true. And she gets a lot of money. And she gets a lot of money. Yeah, she ends up very wealthy. Yeah, was which quite, is great. It was quite rambling. It was a, there's a lot in that book. There's a lot good. There's a lot. It was good. No, I liked it. Thank you. You did a good job. Solid job. Um, now all the people listening who have not read the book will know what it's about. I told you to stop. I said pause this episode and you didn't listen to me. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, but you guys should definitely read it. Um, now for this episode, it just was so hard because I was like, how do we approach this episode? Like, how do we talk about this book? Mm -hmm. And we don't have like, you know, 
six or seven episodes to talk about this book and cover each thing. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, I think there's just like a thousand different ways to approach this text, like via religion, alcoholism, women's rights, misogyny. So I was just like, okay, misogyny. let's talk. <laughs> yeah, let's do misogyny. Yeah. <laughs> let's do the dudes of Tenet. Um, so I think this is a great way to sort of have all these discussions. Um, but yeah, I just want to warn you all that this is like not going to pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> Like, We're going to have some bad lads, sad lads, and very bad dads. Yes. Exactly. So should we start with the one that lit up our Facebook group? <laughs> the main character, really? Yeah, he does feel like the main character. Gilbert. My Gilly? You love Gilly. See, I would Gilbert cast, Markham. I would, I would cast um, my boy Gilly as the narrator, but I definitely think that Helen is the protagonist. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, good. Because I'm, I'm with you there. He's he's telling the story of Helen. He's talking about her life and how he's met her. It's very much like his his story starts when she gets into town and his story ends when they marry. And then mm-hmm. the middle, like the biggest section is her diary and he's not in it at all. So the, yes. the whole story is is Helen. He's just the person kind of telling it. Um, Gilbert, hmm. I know, hard. Um, well, I will say before we get started with him, a uh, little fan casting. I did ask everyone to send in their fan casting for this movie. So three choices for Gilbert for the movie mm-hmm. would be James Norton, mm-hmm. Sam Claffin, mm-hmm. or Matthew Lewis. I don't know who Matthew Lewis is. I, I knew you wouldn't. Neville Longbottom. <laughs> <laughs> no. Who said that? You're fired. <laughs> <laughs> Sam I've, Claflin, whatever his name is. Oh, yeah, is. that's that's who you're going for? He'd yeah, be well, good. You know I can't ever remember who James Norton is. So, um, yeah, so Gilbert, hard one, hard one. I feel like I had a totally different read on Gilbert this time around, to be honest with you. And I think that's because I was reading it very much with modern eyes in the, like, era of Me Too. Mm-hmm. And I think also um, I read this book differently this time around. The first time around... I really wanted Tenet to be a romance. Like, I wanted it to fill the romance hole in my life. Yeah. I don't think it's a romance. Um, reading it this time around, um, you know, and I shared this in the Facebook group, and we'll talk about this a little bit. Um, I don't want to call anyone else out, too, because I feel like this was a very private discussion talking about alcoholism and how that's affected my life and, like, mm-hmm. people that I've known that have suffered from addiction. And I think reading that in the wake of, like, sort of, you know, putting some of those people in my past um, was very powerful. So I was like, oh, no, I'm not even reading this as like a romantic story. And I'm not even actually super invested in Gilbert. Yeah, I, I was mean, like actually really reading this almost for Huntington, to be honest. I think I think Gilbert very much is there to tell the story. I think yeah. um, him, him being interested in Helen from the minute, like he, he is into it like straight away from the minute she gets into town and so just as like a narrative framing device then meeting and then ultimately getting together although let me tell you as this being uh like a bronze book i did not think that was gonna happen oh really (laughs) i was getting closer and closer to the end i was like when's he gonna die (laughs) when's when's that gonna happen when's he gonna drown like (laughs) but he's such he's such an interesting character because 
like I love his rapport with his family um mm -hmm. like all of the scenes where he's just like chatting with his mom and his sister and his brother like that feels very Austin but like very light very like chatty kind of mm -hmm. mild social commentary just on kind of village life and we've got this handsome well-to-do charming funny landowner you know he's got this he's got this big farm like for he's not super rich but he's got he's got stuff going for him so he's mm -hmm. got these choices and so when Helen kind of comes on the scene and you're seeing her through his eyes as this very private alluring mysterious beautiful woman who's kind of sad and aloof and a couple of people are saying like well we only get the story from his point of view are we even sure that Helen's interested in him now I know this is just my reading but that it never occurred to me to doubt that Helen sure. liked Gilbert as much as um as much as he liked her like there's a definite struggle in the book for her um in terms of want wanting to be near him wanting to talk to him wanting to have these conversations with someone who's kind of finally talking to her about the bigger issues that she wants to talk about and not just mm -hmm oh, I look pretty in this dress. So I think that Gilbert kind of meets her as an, as an equal intellectually. But yeah. he, he has to do a lot of growing morally to, to kind of deserve her. And I think, I don't, I'm not entirely sure that you get that payoff. I think he comes off very lightly. Um, do you want to talk about the incident with uh, Mr. Lawrence? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think too, this is where the, I love the structure of this book. I love it when anytime an author tries to play with point of view, mm -hmm. but that does also open it up to misinterpretation. Mm -hmm. So I can kind of see where people would say like, do should we trust, like, is he an unreliable narrator? Like, should we trust his point of view? Because I think there's definitely like Wuthering Heights is definitely that book where you're like, you should not trust this point of view. Yeah. Um, but I think in Tenet, you know, Anne does want you to trust his point of view. And um, I can see how people would say like, oh, is, is Helen really as into him? And people are very sensitive and protective of Helen. But, um, you know, because we, we don't get her side, really. Yeah. And I mean, so that we, is where the structure lets you down. I mean, you do because you get her diary. That whole section is her personal diary that she has written for nobody's eyes but her own. Like, that's but we a don't really direct we don't get her feelings on Gilbert in that initial bit, no, we right? Don't, because she has so, him. Yeah. Cause exactly. So we don't have that. And so people, I think I, I understand why people sort of don't trust it. Um, but that's where the structure lets us down, even though I really love it. I think we do have to like, just say up front though, like she wouldn't have given him this diary had she, she not been in love with him. She wouldn't have given him the diary. She wouldn't have told him her identity. She'd have left. Like we know at this, like, by the time you finish the diary, you know that baby Arthur is her priority and she wouldn't have risked that just for some no. crush. And also, I think it's really important to remember the fact that she is an independent woman at the end of this book. She does not need Gilbert and she chooses to marry him anyway. She could quite comfortably uh, live the life of a widow and just be with yes. her son and not let another guy into her life. And she had plenty of offers and plenty of chances and she wanted to be she wanted to be with Gilbert. Um, and I know yeah. that like that is coming from his point of view, but, but how else can you take a proposal from an independently wealthy widow woman at that time? Like I'm, exactly. I'm, not, sure. I'm not sure what yeah. he is bringing her because he doesn't even comparatively, 
she has more money than him at that point and they don't live nearby like he has to give up his life to go and be with her he gives his farm right. to his younger brother so he really is putting a lot into into that relationship and yeah so I would say I think it's right to question it you should always always question whether or not the narrator is truthful but I think in this circumstance it's just going to distract you from maybe some of the themes and some yeah. of the conversations happening if you just get too focused on does she actually like Gilbert I don't think that's the point yeah exactly I think you know if you watch it too it's probably easier to digest yeah. than if you read it um and I think I, I understand too like the distrust of Gilbert because this whole book like breathes a distrust of men <laughs> yeah absolutely. you can't trust any dude in this book I mean I think we said this in the Facebook group when we said like would how would you rate Gilbert on a scale of one to Thornton he rated a six. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He's not a perfect uh, hero. He's not a romantic hero. I mean, remember, like Anne Bronte's not writing a romance and she's not writing a romantic hero and she's not writing an idealized version of, well, of men. Absolutely. <laughs> like she is like, I'm here to tell you some like hard truths. And those truths are that men are problematic. Yeah. Um, And so like Gilbert is he's like a solid dude. And I think you're right. He has some moral growth mm -hmm. that needs to be done throughout the story. Um, and he actually, <laughs> and uh, worrying, wor uh, worrying anger issues. There's this bit where he, um, he, with the handle of his horse whip kind of smashes Helen's brother, but he doesn't know that he's Helen's brother at the time around the head, knocks him from his horse and leaves him lying in the rain at a time where people yes. did regularly die from getting a chill. Um, yes it's a pretty like, hardcore goes, violent incident it's yeah and it's shocking it is it's shocking but you know we had comments in the facebook group saying like he doesn't he doesn't show any remorse for it he never apologizes he he goes to mr lawrence's house and like they repair yeah. their friendship and he looks after him and he you know he refuses to be sent away from the servant until he admits to to mr lawrence that what he did because as well when he realizes that mr lawrence doesn't have a memory of it um he could quite easily have denied that it happened but i think the reason that this happens is to show that he's different from arthur yeah that and he that actually yeah he actually owns up to his mistakes yeah. yeah exactly um and we there's a comment from um carolyn booth on our facebook group um and she said that he gradually learns a, a better way um, and that once he learns the better way, the company that was once fine is now dull and seen exactly for what it is. And he can't be around gossips anymore. I think that's just like one part mm -hmm. of it. He he becomes a better person through knowing Helen, which is something she thought would happen with Arthur and didn't happen. And I think, again, that's that's one of the clues that she and Gilbert are a real couple. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that incident, too, I was thinking about it a bit yesterday because I was listening to um, a talk from the Bronte Parsonage that Lauren Livesey gave about Wuthering Heights. And she's just talking about the things that are like shocking that we find shocking today in Wuthering Heights were actually not you yeah. know, shocking at the time and vice versa. And so I, it's the same with Tennant. Um, mm -hmm. I actually don't know if this would have been I'm, I'm curious, you know, I'm curious to hear thoughts on this if this would have been viewed as super shocking in the day. Cause I think that, you know, in Gilbert's mind, he is, he thinks Lawrence is kind of also taking advantage of Helen. Like he's, you know, stuck this woman away in this like ridiculous house that's falling down with this yeah. child. And 
like he thinks that he's almost holding her captive in a way like you know just or abusing her and so he thinks that he's sort of like defending helen's honor when he when he Which hits is bullshit and also it's like hugely jealousy like a big yes a big oh jealousy. yes absolutely like it's i mean it's I'm not defending it. No, I know. But, I think he's white. He's is, white knighting is what he's doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I think that's why Gilbert's so interesting. And I think that not Gilbert is grey. And I think that if you see Gilbert as entirely bad and awful and not deserving as Helen, I think you're doing the book a disservice. I think you're doing the nuances of Ambronte's writing a disservice because he isn't a white knight, but he also isn't irredeemable. You know, right. like there's there are much worse characters in this book than I Gilbert. I like what you're saying too about like him actually learning and following Helen's example because I do think that's one of the big lessons of the book that you know Anne is trying to get across. Like, hey, some of you dudes, like we don't need to be following your example, vice versa. Mm-hmm. And I I read somewhere online when I was reading about the book just as well the idea that a lot of the things that Gilbert is doing are not stereotypically male behaviors. The entire story is told through him being very candid and talking about his feelings to a close friend of his. He he isn't being, it's not being told as if he's like got you in a corner of a room and you're someone he's never met and he's trying to be really stoic. Like he is, Mm -hmm. he's bearing his best and worst qualities and his worst fears and his hopes to someone that's very close to him. I think obviously it's, it's his brother-in-law. It's it's the guy that ends up marrying Rose, right? Right. Yeah. But, um, so yeah, I think that's really interesting. Another another point, I guess, before we move on to the next character, um, Jen uh, Gratham on Twitter said, I think the narrative choice of having Gilbert transcribe Helen's diary in a letter, whereby he's essentially usurping her voice, could be seen as a commentary on male dominance in 19th century publishing. Whoa. I just thought that comment was fire. I was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, what I think is interesting as well it's just the idea that helen gives him this really private diary and he's just like yeah cool just gonna copy this out uh just send this to my friend i know i I think that's another failing of the of the structure which again i love but i'm like would we be better with this if he was you know i don't know giving passing this down to one of their children to tell their story do you know what i mean like these intimate details like Like, i'm like who are we yeah like who are we okay with him sharing the story with I think that's the other thing. When I first read it, I did have some issues because by the time you get to what chapter 16, I think is when the letters, uh, the diary starts, you're invested in the town and the people and Mr. Lawrence and Rose and Eliza and everyone um, Mm -hmm. in Gilbert's letters. And then suddenly you've got this diary starting from scratch again. I don't really care about the aunt and uncle. I don't really care about the religious arguments that they're having about morality uh, and mm-hmm. so for me, the diary didn't really get good until Helen is married to Arthur and things are getting bad. Mm-hmm. But for me, I think one of the biggest themes in this book is the the damage uh, that hypocrisy and gossip and slander can like do to, to people. And so you yeah. don't, I don't think you would get that if you didn't set up the idea that people are filling in the blanks for Helen, like why she's there and making her out to be a lot worse than she is. And I think that having the letters kind of bookending the diary just really shows you, it's like, this is what's happening before. This is this like Gilbert is affected by it. He's judging her. He's making irrational choices because of it. And then he learns the truth. And then the second half, he's 
he's kind of trying to mend that and fix her mm -hmm. name and like how much information can I share I don't know you know and it's it's that yeah. struggle so I think it really works to to kind of get that across and to make you think oh maybe I need to cut people a bit of slack yeah yeah now one more comment before we move on <laughs> to our next character just one more um Sarah Rose Kearns said you know this kind of behavior and this is in relation to you know the Lawrence Gilbert fight Mm -hmm. um this kind of behavior would not qualify as good guy in jane in a jane austen novel um so i think here this kind of illustrates the difference between what Anne and jane are trying to do and then also why tenet is so shocking mm -hmm. is because Anne is being very overt like she's being very shocked like she's putting it all out on the table i think jane austen is a, is a very sly subtle writer mm -hmm. um you know she writes a lot of bad lads but it's almost like but Sometimes I, it just it can it can feel like it's swept under the table or it's very sly or you have to sort of know understand the context. I think Anne is being really in your face with the way that men behave. And also, like you said, you're getting Gilbert's feelings, too. You're getting a very much more personal, like dark side to him as well. Well, imagine I mean, you get it gets it gets hinted at a little bit in Jane Austen um, when Wickham and Lydia run away. And it, again, it's one of those great examples of mrs bennett's kind of very real fears just not you can't take them seriously because she is a ridiculous character um mm -hmm. she's like oh and they'll go to london and when they find him uh your father must surely fight him and then he'll be killed and then we'll have to move out of the house because mr collins will get it and right. so yeah i think these things these would happen the the interesting point here is that gilbert is uh, a sympathetic character and i think sarah's right in that i don't know that austin would have made that happen with one of her romantic leads. Right. Yeah. So right. I think a Wickham maybe, or a Willoughby, but probably not a Darcy or an Edmund, you know? Yeah. Well, they're sort of like held up to a standard, you know, they're still like good men with these sort of smaller faults, but. You'd get a Mr. That's... Lawrence for sure. Mr. Lawrence felt yes. very often. And oh yeah, absolutely. Hargreaves, Hargreaves to a certain extent. I don't think he'd be a good guy. I think he'd be a, a, a sad lad, but we'll, we'll meet yeah. him. Yeah, yeah <laughs> absolutely. I just think that like Anne is doing something different here and it's not a romance. Like you're not, there were also other yes. comments in the Facebook group, like is Gilbert like the kind of man that Anne would want? And I'm like, that's not the point. Like that's not what she's trying to do here. She's not trying to give you like an idealized like hero. Mm -hmm. Like she is trying to talk about the problematic behavior of men. But uh, and speaking of, of problematic behaviors, <laughs> Hargreave. Hargreave. Oh, my God. Who I think I might even love more than I love Gillian. <laughs> really? I just every time he walked into a room, I was like, what is this shithead going to do now? <laughs> what is he doing? And like you've put my on. I think maybe it was Facebook. I was just like. Mr. H is officially inducted into the Sad Lad trademark Hall of Fame. He's a 10 out of 10 nice guy who will never understand what he has done wrong. I mean, how many of these men do we know? <laughs> like, yeah, this has not changed. Hey. This is why this book is so, like, modern and relevant. It's like, I'm like, oh, I know this guy. <laughs> this so guy's been around for 200 years. He didn't He didn't make it into the, um, into the recap, but in a nutshell, Hargreaves, meets Helen through Arthur Huntingdon. He's a friend of her husband's who never fully distances himself from the awful behaviour that's being kind of thrown at Helen. 
and mm-hmm. instead is using it to ingratiate himself into her life. And he like he knows that her uh I can't talk. He knows that her husband is having an affair under her own roof. And he he tells her so that he will look better in comparison. Right. And he loves her in a way that he wants to possess her and he wants to get one over on his friend. He's not really interested in her. And the minute she kind of refuses him, it's like, you're a tease. You don't deserve me. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, screw you. I can't believe I've been friend zoned. I've been working yeah. at this for so long. <laughs> Awful. And so oh, our God. fan casting for Hargreaves was Matt Smith, Martin Freeman and Michael Sheen. I think all three guys would kill it. Martin Freeman gets my hand down vote because I'm sorry, I'm going to say it, guys. I think Martin Freeman looks like he shouts at women. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, poor Martin Freeman. Are we going to get sued? Beep that out. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) He he is the perfect choice for this because he's like, I just think that he um, can slide from sort of like nice and harmless. I think it's also because he's got he's kind of like slight of stature. Mm -hmm. He does seem like a really friendly, fun guy that would be like your best friend. And then, you know, you'd go for a drunk night out after you'd just been dumped by a boyfriend and he makes a move and you're like, wait, what's going on? Yeah. Yeah. What's going on? I thought we were friends. And then he turns nasty. So um, that is that is that guy. And I'm just like, whew. That guy has just always been around. The Oscar goes to you. (laughs) (laughs) But Matt Smith, Michael Sheen, definitely they could pull it off as well. That's so, it's funny with the Matt Smith thing, because I was like, oh, he could be my Gilbert. He could be Gilbert. I just, I think Matt Smith could do like an earnest thing. And I think, I think Mm -hmm. the person that plays Gilbert has to, you have to be able to be like believably earnest. And there has to be like a brain in there. Like someone who's really like, oh, I'm really thinking about this thing and I'm going to get it wrong, but I'm trying and uh, and then <laughs> hits his friend and then feels like a dick after. Yeah. 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 Pretty much. Oh, so Hargrave. I mean, he was something else. That, that scene, scene. With, <laughs> with the chest. Yes. Is that the one you were going to say? Because I know that came up on the Facebook group as well. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, and he's like, what is it? Like, if he wins the game, she's just going to fall into his arms? Or Mm -hmm. is that that the vibe he's going for? I think that's the vibe he's going for. It's so aggressive. It's It's aggressive. Classic, classic nice guy. Like, it's just so... I'm like, oh, God, this guy. And it's a literal game. Yes. <laughs> it's a game. This isn't someone who's, like, in love with her. It's just she's just a prize to be won. You know, I said he's in the sad lad. Nah, bad lad. He's a bad lad. He's a bad yeah. lad. We're upgrading yeah. him. I'm okay. Gonna, I'll downgrade him in about 30 seconds. But, yeah, I'm trying to, like, <laughs> people that I'd put him in a lineup with would probably... Maybe not a Wickham, but definitely like a John Thorpe or a Henry Crawford. Now, should we get into Mr. Lawrence? Because you had a lot of Mr. Lawrence feelings today that were interesting, that were sort of added last minute to the show. Yeah, I didn't really think about Mr. Lawrence, but then I realized that, um, again, it's something that comes up uh, towards the end. Uh, Sorry, it came up in discussion of the book in relation to the end, because Helen says to Gilbert, you need to, I don't want to talk to you for six months. Um, if you really love me, then six months won't change that. 
uh, right. you'll still feel the same. And if you guys, if you've got a crush on someone, I would recommend not talking to them for a while because <laughs> it really tells you something. Um, so Gilbert leaves her alone and then the only person he can get information about Helen from is Mr. Lawrence because he's her brother. And so when she goes back to Wild, not Wildfell Hall, Grassdale, oh, I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Arthur's house. When she goes back to kind of take care of her dying husband, the only way that Gilbert can get news from her is what Mr. Lawrence tells him of his sister if Mr. Lawrence shows him any letters. And Mr. Lawrence is like so nonplussed and so just doesn't really get the situation that he's not feeding anything back to Gilbert so Gilbert thinks that Helen's not interested and then at the end of the book you learn that exactly the same thing has been happening at her end so these two people are massively mm -hmm. relying on this guy who knows the situation he's one of the few people that really knows the situation and either he doesn't think that Gilbert's that interested or maybe he thinks his sister doesn't like it whatever but yeah my feelings are that actually Mr. Lawrence is hugely complicit in a lot of the unhappiness that you see. And that yeah. doesn't, it, I don't think that's, I don't want anyone to think I'm saying he's a bad guy. Cause again, it's, it's all gray. This is all in the gray. I think the fact that he's paired off with that, the younger girl that Helen kind of befriends and is seen to be feisty and intelligent and, and beautiful and fun. I think the fact that Anne Bronte marries him off with that and they seem truly happy is a signifier that, this is a good guy who's kind of deserving of happiness. But can we talk about the fact that he didn't tell anyone he was getting married, not right. even his friend Gilbert. Like he lets him just assume that it's his sister getting married. Like what is going on with that? Like, I don't know. So I know I'm unclear on uh, Lawrence. Like I was wondering if he was still a little salty that Gilbert hit him. Like, what's the deal, Mr. Lawrence? Why are you, are you just wrapped up in your own romance and you're just sort of not caring um, I, just, I love that awkward friendship because in Gilbert's yeah. letters, he's always like, man, I don't know about this Mr. Lawrence guy. <laughs> like, I, get, I get a funny read from him or like they don't see each other for a few weeks. And again, it just feels like a very real relationship between people who are social equals and who maybe would have been friends in other circumstances. But the situation, like they're not enemies. But no, they're not at all. There isn't, they just have an awkward friendship. Yeah, it's not as a contrast to the person he's writing to, like it's huge. And I, I just, I think, yeah, I think it's great. I think it's really interesting. I like when Gilbert like shows up to the wedding, like thinking it's Helen's. Yeah. But it's Lawrence's wedding. And so Lawrence nice. is like, oh yeah, great. You came, you made it. And I was like, uh, what? I didn't even. You know who I think would, would be a good Mr. Lawrence? Hmm. That ginger guy. What ginger guy? The uh, Billy Piper's husband. Oh, 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 um, Lawrence Fox. Mm. Okay, I would, I would accept a Lawrence Fox for sure. Sweet. Lawrence as Lawrence. Good. Yep, let's do it. Can we talk about Lord Lobra for like a second? Yeah, absolutely. Don't have any notes on Lord Lobra, but um, one. <laughs> Just gonna wing it. I called him Lord Loughborough. There was, I was staying with my grandparents while I was reading this and they don't have the TV on or the radio on or anything um, for hours and hours at a time. So I was just reading aloud because the silence was killing me. And mm -hmm. I just read Lord and Lady Loughborough every time it came up because I thought it sounded <laughs> better. So Lord Loughborough um, is, again, he's another friend of Arthur Huntingdon's. And this poor guy 
is just abused. He has a gambling problem. He gets himself massively in debt. And Arthur's kind of recounting all of these stories. And then the worse his debt comes, um, the worse his drinking becomes. But they're, yeah. they're like, oh, he's so unpleasant to be around because he's so mopey and miserable that we just pour drink down his throat. And then at least he's fun for a little bit. And you just, you really feel for this guy. And then he falls in love with a woman. You think it's going to be like a fresh start. That's how he sees it. He's devoted mm-hmm. to her. And then she starts having an affair with his friend. And I think I think the conversations between uh, Helen and Lord Lobra are really interesting because they both find out about the affair very... Well, she finds out first and she keeps it from him. Right. But you've got a man and a woman reacting to the same situation because their, their husband and wife are having an affair together. And I think that that's really interesting because although Lord Lobra, like has the power socially, he's very much like his wife is the stronger character, mm-hmm. you know, and he he's more in she love with her She has the power in that relationship. She has the power in the relationship, yeah. Whereas Arthur has the power in his relationship with Helen and just seeing, just, I, I just thought it was, it was really interesting. And then also, oh, the bit where Annabella, his wife, um, goes to Helen and she's like, I'm not going to give him up. Like he's, like he's mine basically right. and just how cold how cold that that interaction is and Helen just yeah. being like I'm not, you know this is my house what I like to there's a scene between Lord Lobra I can't say it because I feel like it's not that his last name is not meant for American because that would be Lo, Lobro for you Lobro right? yeah Lobro yeah. Lobro <laughs> yeah it's really it's hard because I just want to pronounce it too hard um but yeah, there's like a scene where they're talking about, yeah, it's when he first finds out about the affair and he's just like, oh my God, how long have you known? And she's like, oh, a couple of years now. Yeah. Um, but it's, I don't know, for some reason, like during that scene, it really struck, struck me like how much Helen is just reacting mm-hmm. in this book. Like there are so many men just putting things on her mm-hmm. and all she can do is react. And I think that really is why people feel so like protective of Helen or why you just, you just sympathize with her so much. But like, even in that scene where he's, you know, you know, he's not mad at her. He, he's just like mad at the situation. He's just, you know, he's just mm-hmm. spiraling he's just and angry. That, you know, his wife is cheating on him with his. Like, yeah. Thing. He's just like, why, why didn't you stop? Like, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you do something? Like, it's mm-hmm. just like, he's like yelling at her and I'm just like, dude. <laughs> yeah. All Helen can do is just like take all this shit that men throw at her, like even men who are like not even really angry at her. Yeah. I got like kind of mad at him in that moment, but then it kind of it fades and he's just like, I got to go. <laughs> We're also, leaving tomorrow. Arthur has got like too many friends because I remember when the diary yeah. first happened, I was like, who is this? Who is that? What's going on? Too many on? friends. Oh, we're going to talk about that because I have oh feelings on that. <laughs> do you want to move on to Arthur? Let's do Arthur. I slipped in a little section. We were going to go straight into why um, Helen goes back to her husband. But I was going through uh, some of the conversations that had been had and found this little little gem from you, Lauren. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you said, how many good women have been thrust in the way of, of a nonsense man with the goal of reforming him? Let's write a book about him. And then Sarah Rose Kearns came back with this great link to Jane Austen saying, 
Yes, like Henry Crawford, perhaps they secretly want to be dominated by a virtuous woman because novelty, but also make her less rigid and or destroy her. I was struck by the way uh, A.B. describes Arthur and Helen's courtship. There are a lot of red flags, such as the gloating way he reacts to seeing her drawings of him. Yes, but absolutely. I, what I loved about that comment is the fact it's working both ways. She mm-hmm. wants to reform him. He wants to lead her to the dark side. It's like a codependency thing. They're both they're both taking something very unhealthy from the dynamic. They're not like meeting in the middle and being like, I like you. <laughs> it's, <laughs> mm, you could be different. Or like, yeah. And it, it, the, the little wifey pedestal, that gets discussed so much. I mean, look at uh, Helen's friend that ends up married to one of the little shits. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember her name. Millicent or something? Millie? Yeah, I think it's Millie. So she she ends up married to one of the friends, but unlike Helen, she just she remains in love with her husband. He's not as bad as Arthur, but he's he's pretty appalling. And at one point, Helen just has to say to him, like, "Look at your wife, like she's crying because you're making her unhappy. Look yes. at look at your uh, behavior." And I love that moment. That's a great moment. That is such a. I'm so glad you brought that up because I kept meaning to and forgot about it. Because yes, that's another moment where it's just this dude where he's like, "I don't know why she's unhappy. Like she used to be great." <laughs> Yeah. It has nothing to do with me. But unlike basically all of the men, so this guy and, because, you know, I don't know his name, this guy and um, Gilbert are like the only two guys that you see have a kind of a character arc in terms mm, of yes. their behavior changing. And he he mellows out. He's like, oh, yeah, you're right. I should prefer country sports and looking after my land and kind of being involved with my family more than I enjoy drinking loads of wine and he he reforms himself and he ends up happier because of it and I think that's the important thing it's not he does it and he's miserable it's like these these life choices are better for him and he's he's happier and so you've got this moment of it isn't it isn't Helen that failed Arthur Arthur doesn't kind of abuse her and behave the way he does because she wasn't strong enough to change him she manages to change this other guy's mind it's, yes Arthur is awful I think it's it's really great having him in there as a counterpoint you know like Arthur is really awful it isn't yeah Ellen, exactly. Ellen hasn't failed it's just that there are some people it's just people men in this book mostly mm-hmm who need to grow up and learn. I think you also can apply that to Gilbert as well. He's a young man. Yeah. yeah they're, um, all boys. They're, they're all boys. And um, if you're talking about them really in modern terms, and you're talking to, you know, your girlfriends about like, why won't my 24 year old boyfriend sort of like grow up and act straight? Mm-hmm. Like, well, he's, he's just maturing at a different rate. You know but, what you should do if you've got a 24 year old boyfriend and you want him to change his ways? Get him to hit his friend around the head with a horse whip and leave him in the rain <laughs> and make him apologise to him. It works every time. Recommended by Bonnets at Dawn. <laughs> uh, so shall we talk about the big bad beast in the room? You go. You. This is all you, baby. Oh, Huntington. I mean... There's just like too many things to say about Huntington. I'm like, where do I begin? I did love this, the quote that you pulled out from chapter 30. Um, So I'm just going to give that a quick read. Do it. Because I thought it's powerful. 
Since he and I are one, I so identify myself with him that I feel his degradation, his failings and his transgressions as my own. I blush for him. I fear for him. I repent for him, weep, pray and feel for him as for myself. But I cannot act for him. And hence I must be. And I am debased, contaminated by the union, both in my own eyes and in the actual truth. I am so determined to love him, so intensely anxious to excuse his errors that I am continually dwelling upon them. Oof. And even that's like the truest thing. <laughs> even addiction aside, if you're, you, that is that that is what happens when when you love someone and you want the best for them. You you feel all of their highs and and their lows. And yeah, Helen, Helen really is suffering through. Through those those diary en- entries are quite a hard read um, at times. But They're very like, hard to read. That... They are. I um, the first time I read this book, I think I was a little too young, and I was very flippant too with Huntington. I'm just like, oh, just leave him, just get a new husband. Yeah. And you know, not that easy. Also, um, I mean, Anne Bronte, you know. I'm telling you not to think that she's the most religious sister, but she is a very religious person. And um, she does take marriage seriously. And she wants you to know that Helen takes marriage very seriously. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Helen does fall in love with him. And you're right. They have this codependent relationship. And she does think she can, you know, she can change him. She can reform him or their their love can do it, you know, almost magically yeah. <laughs> work itself out. And... Um, she doesn't see the red flags and which is fine that, you know, that happens, but she see, you know, she doesn't see them. She finds herself in this situation and I don't know. It's so hard to articulate because it's just like, I haven't been in a relationship, like in a romantic relationship with an abuser, but I have with, you know, someone else very close to me and just like, that feeling of like I understand that feeling of just like you just love this person and want them to get their lives together but also this person has like a massive hole in their heart that will just never be filled and I saw that with Huntingdon like it was like that's why he has all those friends like that's why he bounces around like alcohol gambling traveling love like it's never enough no no, nothing is enough like his home like his son isn't enough like Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, it's never enough. And I'm like, ooh, that is like, that's like classic. And I feel like that's how Branwell was. Totally. Like he couldn't be filled. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is what Anne gets across like so beautifully. Of, like just tr- loving someone that, you know, you want. Like, and I think the highs, they had good highs too. Like I feel like maybe there were days that Helen definitely felt that she was enough and that she could make this relationship work and that she could make him happy. But and then the lows are really low, you know? What I always think is really interesting with the highs is that actually um, Ambronte does a really good job of describing the effort that goes into yes. managing Arthur's moods. Like the amount of work that yes. uh, Helen is kind of putting into just keeping this odious little man entertained and calm yes. and happy. Um, and then the, the, effect, uh- the effect that it has on him when she isn't doing it, when she isn't going, you know, he's incapable of entertaining himself that's that's one of the big things as well as like on a rainy day mm-hmm. he cannot just settle down he needs to be petted and uh, like pandered to all the time yes and it's annoying i'm talking to you jack housemate 
this. It was definitely something I hardcore related to because I didn't realize within my own relationship how much like emotional labor I was putting in. Mm -hmm. And then there would be days where I was just being myself and minding my own business. And it wasn't, you know, then that person took it personally. Like, why aren't you doing this for me? Why aren't you doing this for me? Why aren't you doing this for me? And I'm like, whoa, is that my, oh, this is my job? Yeah, I didn't realize that that's that's what was happening. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think the, yeah, the emotional labor that's in there, A plus and Bronte. (laughs) So we uh, had a comment from um, Joy on the Facebook group. And I think it's quite long, but the thing that I felt was really interesting about it was when Joy starts talking about the how much Helen has sacrificed to get away from Huntingdon and the mm-hmm. anger that the reader then feels when she goes back uh, mm-hmm. because she's risking her own safety and psychological health returning to him. But then she also risks the son. As soon as yeah. as soon as she goes back to him again, it would be a case of running away, and she can't run back to Wildfell Hall because he might be able to find her there this time, you know. And and so by doing that, she is she's she's limiting her like options. And as Joy says, like if Huntington hadn't have died, she might very well have paid for her good deed in the worst possible way with the permanent loss of her son. And the stakes yeah. are high. And what it's great, it's great that it's kind of evoking that reaction from a reader mm-hmm. like anger at her decision to go back but for Helen who we ha- like we have to talk about the fact that she is she's very religious yes her, her morals are very uh, like they are leading her through life and she cannot turn her back on a fellow human a fellow Christian like walking the path and um, who's close to death and might need to repent that that is worth more than her own happiness like his soul yes his soul in the next life is worth more than her physical discomfort in this. I think too, it's it's also saving her son because I think, you know, if anyone that has a family member that's an addict, I think that's always an issue too. Like has, mm-hmm. is this, you know, is, how is this going to affect my son? And like, what if he follows the, you know, the same path and can he be reformed? And so that's yeah. the other reason why she goes back. I think too, it's like, let me go back to him and see if I can, turn him around now that he's at his darkest hour because if i can save him then i know you know if little arthur in the future goes down the same road i can save him too so i think there's like a bit of that in there as well can i just you've just reminded me of something i've got to say it here because i'll forget otherwise Mm -hmm. mate helen loses her mind at one point she's like Oh, yeah. So what I've started doing is I've started adding like all of this stuff that makes my kid feel sick if he goes near alcohol. And then I give him I give that to him. Like I'm poisoning my son just to make him drink. I was reading that and I was like, whoa, whoa. Yeah, it's pretty pretty hardcore. Intense. That is that was like a that was a shock. And it just I mean, honestly, it made me think of the sixth sense when the mum is like, poisoning her child to keep her sick and I know Helen's doing it for like very different reasons but I was just like this could backfire totally you totally might. like come on but again it's she she feels so strongly about it but I absolutely I do not think that if you if you said that in today if, if you said that now if you're like oh I give my child alcohol but I also put Ipecac in it so he throws up um I think I think social services would get involved yeah, absolutely. And and rightly so. Um, I think it's also interesting to think about, too, like how the Victorians were viewing alcoholism mm-hmm. at the time as well. So like 
is this a medical condition? Is this a moral condition? That's still something that people do question today, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, you know, during their time as well, it was it was definitely like just bad morals. You're just a bad person. It's just like this bad seed. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's lingering in her mind. Like, what if my, my son is a bad seed as well, just like his father, and I need to fix it? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think she's got that going on. I think, yeah, I think it's also the commitment to me. Like, I, I think she loved Arthur. She did. She did. She did love him. And I think that she's going to go back to him. She still feels that commitment to him. And she also... She made a vow. She made a vow. She made a vow. Like, she's got to go back. There's no way around it. And then also, like, people are starting to, you know, figure out who she is. Yeah. As well. And gossip about her in the town. And... um it's not safe for her because someone could call the cops on her. Someone could call the authorities and she could be dragged back to him. Yeah. Well, at any she's, moment. she's his property, right? She's his property. So we've been talking about this book um, via all the dudes, but one thing that's sort of been left out um, has been the gossip angle, which mm-hmm. I think is a really great angle because, you know, I-, I love a book that's sort of about like a, quaint English village and like townspeople are characters and there's lots of gossip but this is like gossip that's malicious and can you know and how it hurts a woman's reputation and how it hurts yeah. this person and um yeah I just oh so again I just feel like you know with the gossip with the men with everything in this book Helen is just trying to live her life and people cannot leave her the hell alone well, I think it's the characters as well that Ambronte has uh, doing the gossiping. You have Eliza, the spurned lover, the the jealous peer of mm-hmm. Helen, someone who, I mean, think think back to the the criticisms of um, Emma. Like Jane Fairfax is the friend that is the young woman that Emma should be friends with, but Emma's jealous, so she is friends with Harriet Smith and vilifies Jane Fairfax. Right. Instead of being kind to um, instead of being kind to Helen, Eliza spreads gossip and like teases and tries to wind Gilbert up. And then through their kindness to Helen, is it the vicar's daughter? Yeah. uh, Eliza's the vicar's daughter, right? Oh, but it's the the other girl who, again, I've forgotten the name. And she's like the plain one. And Gilbert's just like very dismissive of her at the beginning Mm -hmm. of the book. But then through her kindness to Helen, she's kind of reformed in his eyes and he's like you know what she's she's a good lady um yeah and then the the vicar the vicar the big vicar, one the matronly gilbert's mum who mm-hmm. uh, all of all of her concern is coming from like this motherly care about her son and who he's getting involved in and you know but it's it's misplaced and it's not real she's not she's not really concerned about gilbert she she's gossiping and she's like excusing it and it can't be wrong right. it can't be wrong to gossip when the vicar's doing it oh exactly I-, I love that point too and i love that like Anne is just very pointedly making um there- there's a few places in this book where she is talking about hypocrisy you know mm-hmm. and uh especially with people who find them who-, who feel that they are very religious yeah and um she's like no no <laughs> calling you out right here the vicar her aunt like there's a lot of like um I think excellent religious debate in this book. Um which makes me think that Anne is she's much more open-minded. She's much more open to, you know, talking about religion, debating it, like having a conversation than I think even than Charlotte. I think Charlotte's a little bit more one track. 
she doesn't bring up Catholicism like even one time. If this she was, doesn't. If this was a Charlotte Bronte book, we'd have had another 15 chapters, which is the diary of a Catholic person complaining. No, if someone complaining <laughs> about Catholicism. Like, and I think that maybe that's one of it, uh, Charlotte's issues with the book too. You know, we've talked a little bit about like, why Charlotte called Tenet a mistake and really wanted to bury it. And mm-hmm. I've wondered, you know, I, I brought up, like, was she jealous of Anne? Was this, you know, a talent situation? Did, did Charlotte sort of want to be like the only one? But I do think that she thought a lot of her, and just not only me, Amy, got to give credit to Amy Robottom for mm-hmm. this too. She just thought that like a lot of Anne's ideas were crazy. <laughs> yeah. And, but it's like, it's like you're saying about, it's a it's a progressive text as well. Leave your mm-hmm. husband, save the child, leave your husband, be anonymous, fall in love to someone that you're you're not married to. Look yeah. after yourself, put yourself first. Um like literally shut shut the door. Who oh, was it? I mean, who's who was talking about the just the act of of closing the door in um closing the door in Arthur's face? It's, it's yeah. what that's going against the law of the time. She was his yes. prophecy. He he's he has the right. Yeah, it's the famous. There was a famous quote. It's like a the door that slammed in Arthur Huntington's face, like slammed throughout. It reverberated throughout Victorian society. This yeah. was like yeah. this was huge. This was a big idea, and I think also Charlotte felt that that reflected poorly on her. She's much more of a traditionalist. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not. This is not a place she would have gone. And um, she's like, oh, you know, my sister's the one with loose morals, not me. And she was just confused. I don't know that Anne Bronte would have Helen falling in love with an M pool. No, I don't think she would. Or a Rochester. Mm-mm. I don't think that Rochester is sufficiently redeemed by the end of Jane Eyre for an Anne Bronte book. No, but you feel that Gilbert is. Yeah, man. I mean, he doesn't face- do anything else. He doesn't do anything nearly as bad as Rochester. Like, I don't, I, yeah. I won't even tolerate that comparison personally. But <laughs> I was like, no, come on. Rochester has like a woman locked in an attic. And it's like, he's <laughs> actually going to marry her while he's married to someone else. And then it's he's going to take her to Europe to keep her in sin. Also, he has this kid who he's just like, I hate this kid. I've got her, but I hate her. Um, so there's a lot. There's a lot going on there. I think the the only the only and the only thing that Gilbert really does is brutally attack a man and leave him to die. But he, he does says, do that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And Mr. Lawrence is like, "Yeah, I'll totally send you a save the date to my wedding, but I won't." Yeah, well. <laughs> Gilbert's so, on Facebook and he's like, "When did Mr. Lawrence uh, delete me?" Oh, okay. like, maybe, maybe, and he's like, "Oh yeah, it's broken. It unfriended a bunch of people." And it's like, "Yeah, right, Mr. Lawrence. I see your side eye." We had, I mean, too many comments to actually even read out on the show. You guys really brought it. I really, really appreciate it. Um, if you're not in our Facebook group, you should just go ahead and join and like read through those threads. Especially if you haven't read Tenet or you want to pick it up now and sort of feel like you're reading it along with lovely people. I say go for it. But um, shall we read a few of our favorite comments right now? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, we should. Let's go wild. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> um, the lovely Louise Logan uh, right off the bat made this uh, comparison that I was like, yes, I was feeling this too, actually. Um, 
She said, I'm still finding the tension between Helen and Gilbert very reminiscent of my cousin Rachel, which wouldn't be too much of a stretch as there's a lot of Jane Eyre in Rebecca. Um, Yes, absolutely. I actually, I think I watched my cousin Rachel like not too long before I started uh, reading Tenet. And I was like, oh yeah, mysterious woman, gentleman farmer boy, like gossiping people, you know, like it's, I has a lot of that. Yeah, you should see. We should we should read it on the show too as well. Yeah. It'd be a good one for season three. Valentina Burbank uh, said, "In rereading this time, I noticed right off the bat and announces in this text the book is not only a morality tale, as it is largely dismissed or described by um, by certain critics. She makes clear that it, she is exploring society's attitude towards women and how ill it serves them." And then quoted. Well, but you affirm that virtue is only elicited by temptation and you think that a woman cannot be too little exposed to temptation or too little acquainted with vice or anything connected therewith. It must it must be either that you think she is essentially so vicious or so feeble-minded that she cannot withstand temptation and though she may be pure and innocent as long as she is kept in ignorance and restraint, yet being destitute of real virtue to teach her how to sin is at once to make her a sinner and the greater her knowledge the wider her liberty the deeper will be her depravity whereas in the nobler sex there is a natural tendency towards goodness guarded by a superior fortitude which the more it is exercised by trials and dangers is only the further developed yes and that actually like stayed with me throughout this next discussion, which could really lead us into like a whole other episode, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) So Allison asked in the Facebook group, is anyone else reading the Oxford World Classic edition of Tenet? I'm reading the notes on the text as I go. And they just said that a character reading a novel is a sign of moral disapprobation. Do they realize the author was writing a novel? They also point to Northanger Abbey as another example, apparently not having heard that Austin and her family were all novel readers. So this is like, again, we could do a whole episode on this. Mm-hmm. Interesting point that she brings up. Uh, Hannah, you had a great response. I don't know if you want to read the whole thing or summarize it. I had a couple. I will say that my initial response to this was just that um, often when people are writing, uh, it's it is important to remember when you're reading a book that just because a character in a story behaves a certain way that isn't what the author thinks right or that isn't how the author would behave right so sometimes it's worth looking at the who is who is doing these behaviors and is that person a good guy is that person morally ambiguous like what's the situation so yeah I'll, I guess I'll read my response I'm sorry if it sounds like I'm reading a script um Uh, Both Austin and Bronte are challenging societal norms within their novels. In Northanger Abbey, it's way more explicit when it comes to novel reading, I think because so much of that book is about reading novels. Mm -hmm. Um, And also when I wrote this, I couldn't remember who was reading the novel in Tenant, honestly. Uh, The characters that are wild about novels are usually morally dubious. So, uh, for example, Isabella and John Thorpe in Northanger Abbey uh, you're meant to, from the beginning, just be like, warning bells, these people are not, they're not on the straight and narrow. And so right. when Catherine starts reading the novels, it is with the sole purpose of being shocked, reading something a bit sexy, being titillated, 
like not doing what a young lady is supposed to be doing. But then by the end of the book, it, it turns out Catherine hasn't finished the novel. As Helena Kelly right. points out in Jane Austen, The Secret Radical, probably neither has Ill- it, uh, Isabella hasn't either, because otherwise, um, read the book. It's like a really great uh, discussion about have the people who have said they've read the book actually read it. So I recommend mm-hmm. that chapter. Um, the only person who's absolutely read it because he quotes the storyline and the plot and he makes jokes about it is Tilney, who is considered morally right mm-hmm. and a good guy. And he's in there as a foil to the bad people. And so really playing with that idea of people that read novels are bad and people that don't read novels are good because you've got the good guy reading the novel and the bad people just talking about reading them, not actually doing it in the first place. Right. And so it's just, it's playing, it's playing with that idea. And I don't think that that is what Bronte uh, is doing. But again, just if they're saying, if people are like, oh, moral disapprobation. Yes, that was a thing. And now, so now that you've got that knowledge, like look at who's doing it, how are they behaving? And like, what is the author trying to say by making the character do that thing? Right. Yes. And I think I kind of like turned it around to religion as well. So actually going back to that quote that Valentina dropped in the group um, and then also sort of like taking all that knowledge from the North Anger discussion. um, I think it's sort of um, I'll just read I'll read my quote, guys. It's going to it's going to sound like I'm reading a script, but I'm saying um, that both authors are making pointed remarks about what society thinks is and is not appropriate for young women and sort of the Mm -hmm. information that they digest. So, you know, just like Catherine and Isabella shouldn't be filling their brains with like silly novels. Helen shouldn't be reading the Bible and interpreting it on her own terms. Mm -hmm. So that is something for a man to do. So the man who is like the head of her household, her father, her husband, or her spiritual leader. Like that, it's it's dangerous, basically, is what I'm saying, to let women get ideas into their head, which is actually just what, you know, Valentina, you know, quoted from Anne. Like, that's what Anne's saying. Like, yeah. And that that conversation between Helen and her aunt, it's like, well, well, where did you learn that idea? And she's like, well, I learned it in the Bible, auntie, like this book that I meant to read. Right. But that, that brings us to a really good point that um, Dan Maggers on the Facebook group, um, bringing it back to Austin. So Dan said, as a point of comparison, it is worth noting that Fanny Price's reading does not include novels. Uh, instead, they are histories, etc. And that's how uh, that's part of how Austin is characterizing Fanny as strictly moral and almost priggishly so. And you can find a note about that in the Norton Critical Edition of Mansfield Park for reference. And I thought, mm-hmm. again, that's great. Like, who's not reading the novel? And for context, I think it's Annabella in Tenement of Wildfell Hall, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Who is morally not not doing good things. <laughs> so I'd say, yeah, moral disappropriation. So, Hannah. Yes, Lauren? If people would like to find us on the internet, where should they go? You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us, bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. Somehow people that don't hear me saying this every week find us on Facebook and it blows my mind. Just search Bonnets at Dawn, answer the question, Team Austin, Team Bronte, Team Gaskell, don't have a clue. Let us know. And uh, come and talk to us about Tennant. It's not too late. Come talk to us about North and South 
it's not too late. I'll even talk to you about Pride and Prejudice, which I did for no good reason last week. So <laughs> It's true. Come on in, guys. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us this week. And we will be back next week to talk at you about some other Gaskell, Bronte, Austin related thing. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.